So Floating Doctors, you know, they're a nonprofit. Um, I think they're based out of the USA, but we work in Boca del Toro as well. The Floating Doctors role there is uh, healthcare delivery um, to really underserved indigenous uh, rural communities. Because we have batch about 24 different communities who all really have are so, so rural and they're so um, cut off from modern amenities that they have no access to healthcare. So we bring healthcare to them and we go to a different community every single week uh, and we take a boat, hence the floating doctors, uh, and we provide care. And the really nice thing is, you know, you get to go back to these communities. So it's not just a one time I provide care now and I never follow you up. We go back every single three months so we can manage that diabetes. We can manage that hypertension. Um, we can manage these chronic, chronic medical conditions uh, to really make an impact. You know, I think uh, for the, an organization like this, you really need that longitudinal care, uh, which is one of the biggest impact that Floating Doctors provides. Welcome to our Crafting Wellness podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Dr. Young. Would you give us a little introduction? Just tell us where you're from, where you currently are, and what you do. So I'm a South Jersey native, um, originally from a little place called Edgewater Park, probably not too many people know of, but uh, most of my life's been spent mostly around the Philadelphia area. I went to Cooper Medical School, um, where I finished my training back in, uh, was that, 2017, um, and then I did my residency in internal medicine over at Thomas Jefferson Hospital. And um, I did about six months, six, seven months of uh, volunteer, volunteering as a medical doctor in Panama for the nonprofit organization Floating Doctors. Yes. And for everyone who doesn't know, that organization is amazing. We're going to talk more about that. But I would love to hear your journey in medicine. Did you always know that being a doctor was something you wanted to do? That's a good question. So, um, well, for me, originally in college, I wanted to be a geologist. Um, and then I kind of found out over a little bit that that wasn't for me. And then I actually switched and got my degree in pre-veterinary medicine. Um, but it was during my time in college where um, you know, I think I, you know, I always love science and I know I want to do something medical, but you know, it's a bit of a, a difficult thing to say, I want to be a doctor. I want to do medicine. It, it's known to be a big burden. Um, so around my junior year, I think it's where I switched, um, from veterinary medicine, which, you know, itself is a difficult pr profession as well into, um, human medicine. Um, and there was, you know, some things I think that kind of led me down that path. Um, I had death in the family. I think that, um, really gave me some inspiration to um, really try to, um, you know, commit to something and really work hard for something in my, in my life. And I think that's kind of started me along that path and eventually uh, kind of led to, led me to where I am today. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for me, college had a similar kind of experience where you go in and you start learning all of these things and experiencing all of, the, all of this different kind of culture and food wise and all these things that happened to me where I like, kind of just woke up my entire world. And I was like, wow. <laughs> uh, and then you can just kind of discover it's a lot of self-discovery. I feel like when you're in college and um, you can think you want something going in and then as you find these new studies, be like, oh, no, a philosophy for me was a big one that I kind of stuck to and, and loved and mm -hmm. really enjoyed, but I didn't have any idea what philosophy really was until I went to college. And um, it's interesting how we can find our, our path sometimes by, uh, by finding what we don't really want to do, thinking we want to, and then realizing, oh, actually, it's kind of there, but it's mm -hmm. 
more specifically this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's hard to know really what you want to do with the rest of your life at 17, 18. So uh, yeah. <laughs> everyone finds, usually find their, finds their way eventually, which is the good Absolutely. Thing. Can you tell us a little bit about how many years it takes generally that journey? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess the journey kind of starts after college. Um, and then most traditional degrees are four years of medical school. Um, and then after that is uh, where, the, where the hard part starts. That's uh, residency. Um, I didn't realize I worked with a lot of other people in the Netherlands and other countries. A lot of times right out of medical school, a lot of other countries, you can go right into be a primary care physician. But, you know, you, USA, it's usually pretty required to do a residency program. And uh, residency is, you know, I did the one of the shorter residencies for internal medicine. That was three years. Um, and then I did an extra one year as a chief. Um, but, you know, I think the thing I always think about medicine is that you have to be very, very prepared um, to enjoy learning. Because if you don't enjoy learning, if you don't enjoy sitting down with a book studying, um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a pretty tough road. And I was fortunate enough that uh, even though it was a tough road, I didn't enjoy enjoy it sometimes a little bit too much of a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big things is uh, being committed to learning, to learning for the rest of your life or else, you know, it's kind of what your job's dependent on. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the first, I say two, two and a half, three years, you're sitting in front of a book and then a third, fourth year. And then residency is really when you kind of get in front of the patients um, and it's really when it becomes more on the job learning uh, and kind of goes away from the theoretical and really into um, what is like realistic and what is um, pertinent for the situation and for the patient that's in front of you. Absolutely. So for you, um, after you did your residency, and is that when you started getting involved in these missions? Yeah, so um, that was actually, so Floating Doctors was uh, really one of the, really the first global health mission I was able to do. And uh, I, you know, I didn't think I was going to do it at first or I hadn't, you know, maybe put a little bit of thought into doing something like that. But uh, really as a, a lot of due to my wife, she wanted to travel. And, you know, I figured what, what better way than to go somewhere where you can help people who are underserved and um, try to make impact on a you know, different community uh, outside of the outside of the U.S. For me, it's actually uh, kind of a jump jump in right into the deep end first experience, and I did it for yeah. Just got home from Panama, and I did it with uh, work for Flynn Doctor about six months um, during my time. I love that. Yeah, we um, we donated some stethoscopes to uh, floating doctors, and then I was doing a little story on it and then they posted about you and I was like oh so interesting I would really love to hear more about what this is like over there can you tell everybody who doesn't know that's listening and watching right now um a little bit about floating doctors and what they do and what your role was over there in Panama yeah of course of course love to um so floating doctors you know they're a nonprofit. profit um they're based out of the USA but we work in Boca del Toros which is uh on the Atlantic side it's basically a Caribbean archipelago um, and the floating doctor's role there is uh, healthcare deliver delivery um, to really underserved indigenous uh, rural communities. Um, so, you know, what we do is we have batch about 24 different communities who all really have are so, so rural and they're so um, really, you know, cut off from modern amenities that they have no access to healthcare. 
So we bring the healthcare to them and we go to a different community every single week. Uh, and all of our medical providers, our nurses, our doctors, volunteers, um, administrators will come with us. We take a boat, hence the floating doctors. Uh, and we go to these clinics and, you know, we set up camp and we stay there. Usually you stay there for the week, sometimes a day if they're a bit closer, but a lot of times stay there for an entire week and we, um, we, we provide care. And the really nice thing is, you know, it'd probably be nicer in the future if we could do it more often, but, you know, we, we kind of are dealing with the means of what we have right now. But the nice thing is that we actually get to go back to these communities. So it's not just a one-time uh, provide care now and I never follow you up. We go back every single three months so we can manage that diabetes. We can manage that hypertension. Um, we can manage these chronic chronic medical conditions, which uh, to really make an impact, you know, I think uh, for the, an organization like this, you really need that longitudinal care, uh, which is one of the biggest impact that Floating Doctors provides. Yeah, the work that you all are doing there is really incredible. Um, I was reading a lot about it, and um, it's just it's such a beautiful kind of story of how you guys help. How, how big of, of a workforce would you say it is with the nurses and the doctors and the administrators and the volunteers? How many people are we talking typically? So when I first started, um, this was going back about eight months ago. This was the middle of COVID. So, you know, a lot of the workforce, especially the, the medical workforce, uh, is reliant on other countries and, you know, volunteering and um, professionals coming over and helping. And that had been severely, severely impacted um, by the COVID pandemic. Um, so when I got there, I was one of uh, three physicians and probably about a team of 10 to 12 people so pretty small and you're talking you know when we go out to these communities we're treating uh during that week um you know 100 120 130 patients uh so it was quite quite stressful by the time that i had finished my um my six months at floating doctors we had more like 25 workers at a time going out to these uh clinics so it really fluctuates and Fortunately, um, with uh, international travel being less restricted, it's actually increasing. And I think, you know, even in the next couple of weeks to months, we'll be seeing up to 50. And hopefully, one of the things I'm really hoping for is that um, further down the line, we'll even be able to do two, we'll have enough people to do two clinics at once. So it'd be able to provide even more access to care for those patients who need it the most. Absolutely. Yeah, I know it's it's with COVID and everything that happened. I know that that those places probably get hit the worst because people aren't able or weren't able to as easily travel to those places of need and get the care there that's so desperately needed there. Could you talk a little bit about, um, I know you talked about hypertension and what kind of, has COVID really hit over there in Panama to these more indigenous places or is it more um, like hypertension and diabetes and these kinds of things that are affecting them? You know, it is uh, kind of a mishmash of everything. So going off the COVID, um, you know, COVID did, you know, hit these communities. It's hard to say exactly how hard it hit them, but um from a disease standpoint, you know, but when we go back to the community, be like, oh, well, you know, one person died and it's what they died from, they had a fever and shortness of breath. So you can never really totally clinch the diagnosis, which we can have in modern medicine, but you're talking about, you know, one or two people out of a community of 120 dying within that certain amount of time um, and dying at the same exact time that a flu-like illness with 
respiratory complaints was going around that community. Um, so, you know, I think the, the disease itself did take a pretty significant toll and um, many of them were not able to, you know, to get to a place where they could be administered oxygen. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, died from a potentially preventable death. Um, so that was, you know, uh, definitely impactful. And the second impact, um, which was, you know, I would say almost just as bad as uh, there was just decreased delivery of foods and goods to these communities. Um, everything was shut down in Panama, um, just like in the, you know, in the USA or other countries around the world. And, you know, for us, we can order things on Amazon. For them, you know, the one store that sells non-perishable food items like rice was not getting any shipments. Um, so sometimes in, within three months of going back, you would see, you know, children being more stunted, um, decreased growth, um, malnourished and, yeah, you definitely even see adults, you know, losing a ton of weight within that time, just from lack of adequate nutrition. So, you know, and I think it's multifaceted the way that COVID uh, affected them from a, from very, um, pretty severe standpoint. Yeah. And that has to be frustrating. I feel like as a doctor, global health is so important. Mm -hmm. It's so easy for us to take for granted, like you talked about Amazon or just mm -hmm. the fact that we have clean water. Oh, absolutely. The water situation like there. Yeah. So the water situation there is tough. So um, there has been multiple uh, and you know, previous and ongoing attempts to solve the water situation. Um, but m the only way that for access to adequate drinking water uh, in m many of these rural communities is basically from the roof, the roof um, uh, collecting rainwater and basically drinking rainwater, which is, you know, pretty safe. Um, the problem is, is that there, you know, this is a tropical climate and it's, but there are still dry seasons. So that, that water doesn't last all year. And when that water goes away, um, you know, they, they have to drink out of streams, which can be commonly polluted um, and, you know, gives rise to not only GI worms, but uh, any, most bacterial infections in the book. Um, so, you know, that is one of the things that's difficult. Floating Doctors you know, has been working on this and actually they've teamed up with uh, Engineers Without Borders to actually uh, trying to fix this problem. And they're starting off with one of the communities, Cabrera South. Um, so that's something that's currently underway, but uh, it has been something that's, you know, very difficult, not only um, because polluted water and unsanitary water um, leads to such illness, but you know, the, the communities know this, they know that the water is bad and because they know the water is bad, they don't drink it. And so they're in chronic states of dehydration as well, um, which is something uh, not to go on for too long, but it's something that you see as well, that there's a new disease entity called Mesoamerican nephropathy. Um, and basically fancy term for people being dehydrated so often and so long that it actually starts developing their kidney, hurting their kidneys and um, eventually can even lead to kidney failure. And something that has been seen a lot of times in farm workers, um, not as much in Panama. It's mostly studied in, I think, Nicaragua and Costa Rica. Um, but, you know, it just goes to belie that this you know, water issue is uh, definitely an issue on so many different levels and so many facets. Yeah, and I, it makes me really sad, actually, because you just think about like even just going to a restaurant here in the United States and people mm -hmm. bring you water and half the time it's not even people just don't even drink it, you know, and mm -hmm. people over here who are literally dehydrating and dying from 
not having access to clean water and we're just over here wasting it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling to me because, um, you know, there's an attitude with water here. I feel like people just don't really want to drink it. They want to drink their sodas and their mm -hmm. you know, juices and everything. And I'm a big water lover, if you can't tell. Um, <laughs> I was <gonna laughs> I say, do a lot should... of like hot yoga and saunas and stuff. And so I, I drink a lot of water and it's like my mm -hmm. favorite thing to drink, but it's something I think about because I, because I love it. And because I'm just oh, yeah. very aware of how important it is in our body. I mean, what is it? 75% of our body is made up of water. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, it's only about yeah, pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I know that it's it's really important and I can feel it when I when I don't have water and it just um mm -hmm. it's obviously something that really needs to be addressed and people need to understand that it's it's a, a problem. It's a major problem in, in a lot of places. Oh absolutely. Yeah. I mean it's hard to even imagine. Um well, when you're there, it's easy to imagine, but, you know, being back in the, back in the States now, back in Philadelphia, it's hard to imagine. It's like, well, not having access to just clean yeah. drinking water and the, the, seeing the rivers that, you know, or the streams that they have to drink out of sometimes when they run out of um, the potable water and they run out of um, rainwater. And it's, you know, it's definitely tough. It's definitely tough. Yeah, I imagine. So what has it been like, like being, how long have you been back now from Panama? Uh, only three days, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's cold. <laughs> it's yeah, very, very cold. cold. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's kind of a culture shock too, just after being away for six months and coming back to. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's things. Uh, well, even now, you know, it's, well, air conditioning, heat. Um, yeah, it's definitely a bit, you know a bit of a culture shock in the, in every sense of the word. Um, nice to be back in some points, but you know, definitely. Uh, the weather and the lack of outdoor activities can kind of get get you a little bit down for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Is it something you think you'll go back and do? You are you going to work with floating doctors more, or are you going to work on other missions, or what's what's happening now for you in the in the near future? Oh, so um, right now I'm actually waiting. I'm currently unemployed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm waiting to start my job at uh, Cooper um, Hospital in New Jersey uh, and Cooper Medical School. Um, but, you know, going back to floating doctors and help teaching and, uh, you know, help care for patients is uh, definitely something that I plan to do in the future. Probably hoping to do, you know, two or two or three weeks uh, out of my year, but kind of have to see how my new job works out first before I can really commit to anything. <laughs> I, love, to I love that. So, okay. There's a couple of questions I have still um, for, for your new job that you're mm -hmm. starting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And because, you know, a doctor, it's, it's such a general term. Can oh, you for tell sure. a little bit about what it is specifically you're, you're doing and what kind of doctor you are and if you have a specialty or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I uh, chose internal medicine uh, for medical school and uh, mostly because uh, general medicine doctors are a lot of times the teachers uh, in the hospital of medicine. So teachers at medical uh, at a residency level, but a lot too at a medical school level. And I knew that's kind of what I wanted to get into. Um, so my job going forward is hospitalist, which means a doctor who basically is an internal medicine primary care doctor, but only works in the hospital. So patients who have most your general ailments, pneumonia, um, COPD, um, heart attack, uh, most of that stuff you see on house. Uh, a lot of them, if they're not getting surgery, 
they come to internal medicine, they come to the hospitalist and the hospitalist is kind of the coordinator with all the specialists um, to get the patient the care that they need to be healthy and get out of the hospital. Um, and then the other part of my job is uh, education. So I teach, uh, I will be teaching at the medical school um, as well as teaching at, uh, at the, um, uh, the residency level too. So wow, it's a little like bit of both, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be busy. I haven't started yet, so I don't, I don't know how busy it's going to be, but very excited uh, to start soon. And it's the sure. same um, medical school that I, you know, had done all most all my medical training at, so I know everybody. So very excited. Yes. To so you, you're home now, <laughs> but it sounds like you're going to be pretty busy coming up. <laughs> yeah, I was busy before too. So. Um, it's nice having, I actually was in uh, Bocas for a little bit. The, you know, it's, it's kind of a touristy town where a lot of this rural area. So I was all for the month. So I think I need something to do. Curious, when you, how did you even get involved with floating doctors? Like, how did you come across them? And what was the application process like? If people want to get involved in the floating doctors or something like that, can you can you walk us through a little bit about what that process is like and um, just what it was like for you to get involved? So uh, for me, you know, once um, me and my wife were really committed to moving abroad, um, I went on the internet, I looked at some things, um, but I, you know, I didn't exactly find any place that really, uh, really spoke to me. And then I fortunately, um, one of the other co-chief residents with me, uh, Sonia, uh, her friend um, mentioned that she worked uh, as a medical student in this place called Floating Doctors. So that's kind of, you know, that referral is really what brought me to them. I looked on their website, which is you know, easy to remember, floatingdoctors.com. Mm -hmm. uh, so they make that very easy for you to look up. And, you know, kind of spoke to me and I saw what they were doing and I saw um, kind of their general philosophy uh, and it really spoke to me. And I think I reached out that day or next day. Uh, and then um, the executive director talked to her, uh, Sam Horn. It was, you know, pretty much um, went from there. And I don't think I applied anywhere else. And luckily enough, they gave me a job for six months. And uh, that was it. Um, but, but easy to apply to, you know, I mean, floatingdoctors.com. If you just go there, you'll find all the contact information. And, uh, you know, they're happy to have volunteers and happy to have uh, people who are going to be there for a longer period of time doing a fellowship, which is what I did. Uh, and, you know, very, very straightforward and uh, efficient process. So, yeah, it, it sounds like um, they need all kinds of people from doctors to nurses to volunteers to med students, administration. Um, I'm sure they could use all the help they can get. So, we'll definitely be linking all of that information in the video. Um, mm -hmm can find it and find floating doctors and get involved and check out their website because they're doing amazing work over there. And, you know, to your point, you, you know, you really don't need uh, to have, you know, any, even a job in, in the medical field. Uh, one of the guys that we worked, that I worked with for a long time, um, he was our pharmacy coordinator and he did supply chain um, uh, in the Netherlands. And he, you know, he really helped more than I think, a lot of people who with medical background could, you know, he made the supply chain more efficient. Um, he ensured that we didn't stock out of things. He got everything we needed, included MDF supplies uh, when we needed uh, to, you know, our, our base. Um, even the workflow got more efficient. You put tape down everywhere. Um, 
for our workflow in the pharmacy. And, you know, it, and it really gets to show you that, you know, it's a multidisciplinary project and, um, you know, you don't need to have a medical background. There's administrative uh, and uh, supply chain, all sorts of other people that make something like this possible. I think that's really encouraging. But it sounds like you're a really busy person and um, <laughs> healthcare takes up a lot of your time. Medicine takes up a lot of your time. Um, but what do you like to do outside of your job? Um, I know it sounds like you know your wife love to travel. Um, mm -hmm. get, let's get to know you a little bit. What do you do? You have any hobbies? Do you have any like outlets creatively or? Sure. Yeah. So uh, exercise, you know, is one of my big things. Exercise every day. They always say during medical school or residency, you got to just pick at least one thing that you love and keep doing that. So fortunately enough for me, I was able to keep doing that every day or you know five times a week since. Um, you know, since I started medical school, other things, uh, golfing uh, with my friends on with the boys on Sunday is a big thing. So always keep up with that. Um, instrument, I used to play a little bit of instruments, but not as much anymore. Um, and I think, you know, maintaining friendships, maintaining, you know, family, and we have really close family here that I get to see a lot as well. So, uh, I think those are the most important things and things that, you know, keep me going for sure. Yeah. I always talk about just like making sure you're living in between the moments of just like the thing that you're trying to go for, um, mm -hmm. whether it's like waiting for your new job to start or um, studying or whatever it might be. But, um, you know, you can get so super focused on something that you forget to kind of like that other things in your life need your attention. So mm -hmm. I think it's it's great to hear that you, you've you got a close family and you enjoy golfing and exercising. It's all like really important to, you know, for mental health and physical health and just that your whole life doesn't just become your job because I think that that can easily happen when, oh, yeah. when you're so dedicated, yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything in moderation. Please. So do you have any advice um, for other people who want to become a doctor or any kind of thing that you wish you had known? Um, if you could tell your younger self something, any kind of inspirational thing you want to leave us with? Yeah, of course. Um, one of the things that always helped me is um, I think, you know, it's a, it's a hard road, but it's, you know, satisfying for sure. Um, but, you know, looking, one of the things I always uh, work for me is like you know looking at learning as not as a chore but you know as a privilege you know a lot of people um they don't have the amenities they don't have the time they're busy providing for their family and they maybe not don't have access to education um and you know for them you know learning and sitting and uh doing something like medicine every day uh isn't possible so I think, I think the biggest thing is, you know, when you're sitting down with a book or, you know, you're studying up, like, it's really a privilege and an honor to be able to do something like that to help. And when you kind of maybe change that mindset, um, even in college, studying for to go to medical school or especially, you know, during medical school, I think it helps you get through it and, you know, kind of deal with the um, sometimes owner, onerous hours that you put in. So yeah. maybe that's one, but it's hard to say. I think everyone, uh, I can give my advice, but I think everyone has their own reasons and own philosophy and uh, own um, way to enjoy what they love. You touch, touched on privilege, and I think it's um, something that's, it's easy that 
for us to take for granted, like, oh, I have to study, I have a test, or I'm, I'm in residency, and it's so difficult, I don't have time for anything. Um, and I know that it's hard, but, you know, the fact that you can even pursue it and are, have the ability to and can take the time uh, to go after your dreams and become a doctor um, and, and go help people, it's, it's a privilege in the job and it's a privilege to us as well the people that you're taking care of um because we need people out there who are dedicated and who are um who are as thoughtful and caring and want to bring health to not just um one part of the world but to bring health and wellness globally because everybody deserves to be healthy and um and we should all be able to have access to health care yeah i totally agree totally agree what would you say, um, just to bring it back real fast to the floating doctors, um, sure. needs that they have, um, things that you noticed, how can people help? Um, I know obviously we're going to have a donation link to their website mm -hmm. if you want to donate. I'm sure that's always, always needed. Um, but as far as um, just anything you really noticed that there's a need there, whether it be for the doctors, the nurses, the, the med students, whether it be for the, the patients themselves, uh, yeah, no ways to help. Um, you know, I think there's direct uh, and maybe indirect ways. Um, but I'd say the direct ways, you know, volunteering, um, you know, not only volunteers, um, you know, help out with the day to day. Um, but, you know, when you volunteer, you help out with, you know, that clinic and um, the more people there, the better. Um, doing a fellowship with floating doctors, uh, you know, it's six months usually or more. Um, but you, you know, really, really can make a big impact in that amount of time. Um, whether you're a physician, um, whether you're a nurse, uh, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, um, or out, you know, like I said, outside of the medical medical profession itself, is also always um, welcome and needed. Um, and then I think you know other ways of direct helping, obviously, is donation. I think one of the you know working directly for floating doctors. Um, one of the things that you get to see is really how efficiently they use the money. Um, we know exactly how much money goes to each thing every every week, and I mean it's it's spent on, you know, keeping the base running, utilities, um, and most of it's spent directly on providing medicine and providing tool medical tools um, to help the medical team continue to treat these patients. Um, and some of it, you know, if you know we can't provide every single medicine or every single procedure. We pay directly for these patients to get transport um, to the nearest place that they can go to. And sometimes that is six hours away, um, but your money directly goes to, you know, a patient who is having sometimes maybe having like a life-threatening urgent illness and needs transportation um, to the nearest hospital. You know, that's people who donate. That's what their money goes to, not just medicine, not just um our medical care that we provide, but, you know, these patients, you know, transportation is such an issue from these um, really remote islands mm -hmm. that the only way they can get somewhere is through us. And, uh, you know, your money that you donate directly helps these patients getting the care that they need, either from us or we can provide it from somebody else. Um, so I think those would be, you know, obviously the biggest ways to, um, you know, help out. And we, you know, work with phenomenal other um, agencies such as MDF, um, who has provided with the instruments. We've uh, also worked with um, 
blessings, which provides us with ex extremely, extremely low cost uh, medicines. Um, and they're also a nonprofit that are, is a charitable organization as well. Um, so it really takes actually a lot of something I didn't realize a lot of different nonprofit organizations to really make things like this work. So um, donating to learning doctors is obviously one way to one way to help out. Yeah, so so well said. Um, I think you know we take uh, one person can make a difference, but if we can all come together in ways that we can and help out the ways that we can, then we can even make a bigger impact and bring that health and wellness globally and continue to do that work. So um, I'm I'm really grateful for you for taking the time um, to go and do that and to help out and help people and um, and just it's really inspiring to see because I feel like in it's just people can get wrapped up in their own lives and not realize how much um, need there is out there. And for you and your wife to take the time to go there to another country and help people. Um, it's just, it's very inspiring. And I think um, we're all very grateful to you for, for doing that. And we encourage everybody um, listening and watching who wants to donate or volunteer, please go check out the floating doctors thefloatingdoctors.com um, and check out all the awesome work that they're doing. Well, Dr. Young, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today on our Crafting Wellness podcast. It's been such a pleasure having you. Um, do you have any um, social media handles or any websites or anything you want to leave here for people to come follow you or check you out or anything? Um, I don't have much. I'm actually not very connected to social media. I do. I did have an old... Um... When I was a chief, I did all my, I recorded all my lectures and I made a Nicholas Young or the Nick Young or Nick, Nicholas Young. I think it's a Nick Young medical education YouTube channel, but that's about all I have. Um, if you want to see some internal medicine residency lectures, you can watch. I think there's about 70 on there. Oh. Um, but outside of that, um, I think I just direct you to floating doctors or MDF. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.